American capitalism, in my view, it's more like an operating system. So you take it away from ideology, so it's less of a philosophical system and more of an operating system. That's a that's a fool's errand, in my view, to to judge whether a system is legitimate based on whether it needs ongoing tweaks. In a year like 1905, 1906, that's the first time in American history that you had over a million people come into the country. Once America did participate in World War I in 1916 and on, you really saw the use of the income tax to finance the war in a sense. It just kept getting worse year after year. I mean, that's, that was the whole issue. It just kept getting worse and it was not correcting itself. And the uh, economic orthodoxy of the time just was not working. The other thing that you can see as to how receptive Americans were to this new approach is if you look at Roosevelt's victories. Sometimes once a country starts getting momentum in a certain category of product, they tend to get better and better and better at it. If you're talking about small-scale electronics manufacturing, they're the best on earth. Well, that wasn't the case 25 years ago. Eisenhower, um, in the early 20s, had taken a tour across America and was shocked at how dilapidated the roads were. You would pretty much have self-driving cars because the car is not relying on its own cameras and its own processing power, but it's also able to rely on um, intelligence from the road itself. Boo, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to chat about your book, Americana. I have a lot of questions for you, and we can we could probably spend days talking about this book, to be honest. It was a great read. Um, but first, before we get into the book, why don't you start by telling listeners a little bit about your background and why you decided to study the last 400 years of American history? Well, Kevin, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you and thank you for the flattering words and, you know, making outreach and, and having me on your show. So it's always exciting. You know, the books you know, came out a few years back, so it's kind of has this uh, long tail with it um, and it's gotten a little bit more pickup in the last couple of years. And um, it's always exciting to be able to discuss the book and, and discuss the topic, of course. Um, so I was a... Uh, uh, you know, an immigrant into this country when I was eight years old. Um, that's kind of how the book starts, the introductory, the introduction starts. Uh, lived all over the country. My mother was a scientist. So we lived, um, you know, in Buffalo, New York, San Diego, Seattle. I know I was sent to live with my aunt in Virginia. So I've had a very nice um, sample of America in lots of different places um, and, and really good friends and um, good families around. And um, I, I just really enjoy my time. And I always wanted to look at what were the drivers of um, American capitalism later on in my career, because in, you know my, the early part of my career, I was in the dot-com boom, um, and I wanted to go to Wall Street, but I ended up um, you know, really participating in the dot-com boom with a couple of companies. I sold a company to a company that later on went public in my early 20s. Um, so I was always driven by you know trying to participate in the next big thing. You know, that's where you know, the most money and the most wealth is created and um, industries are disrupted. So you always want to be there. And later on in my 30s is when I really, you know, had a little bit of breathing room and I wanted to actually start it as a television project. So I expected Americana to be a television project, kind of like a 40 for 400 years, like ESPN's 30 for 30. So 40 episodes over 400 years. And I ended up getting a book deal instead of a television deal. And it's like, what now? You know, you got to actually write the book. And um, 
So that's why the book has kind of very much an episodic cadence to it. You know, it's got one main character or two main characters per chapter. It's got one next big thing um, that really looks at, you know, all the social ramifications, the ramifications of the consumer, on the producer, on how society's transformed. And I tried to keep that, keep that theme throughout the book, obviously, you know, it gives it kind of that uh, narrative momentum. Mm-hmm. And it's a pleasure to write to. I'm always, I mean, I'm, I'm a writer at heart. So I've always kept um, journals. I've always kept all kinds of things. But the book was my first, you know, real attempt at putting my writing out there. Well, if we're going to be talking today about capitalism, I think it makes sense to start with some definitions and just kind of, I'd love to hear you break down your view on what American capitalism is and how that might differ from what someone might read in a book about Adam Smith's version of, you know, textbook capitalism. What is pure capitalism versus what is American capitalism after having done all this research? Right, exactly. Or the Ayn Rand version of capitalism or the libertarian version of capitalism. And I think that American capitalism, in my view, it's more like an operating system. So you take it away from ideology. So it's less of a philosophical system and more of an operating system. And when I say operating system, it's an economic system that it's looking to produce, you know, the greatest benefit for the greatest number of people. And you're trying to figure out what do you do to have a system that does that certain types of activity, you want to encourage entrepreneurs to be as creative as possible. Other types of activities you want enormous scale and you have to have enormous amounts of emphasis on safety like airplanes for instance okay it's nice to have the faa regulate airplanes we rarely crash anymore so that's not necessarily a function that you're going to give to a bunch of crypto kids um you know trying to experiment with banking so there are different types of things where you can allow your society to be experimental other types when you have to err on the side of caution and safety and then you're learning these lessons as um American society evolves and develops, and you're starting to see how new things impact the old, how new things um, have unforeseen consequences, like with social media and, you know, child, child trafficking, you know, all these types of different concepts that you've never seen before. So history oftentimes rhymes, but sometimes you, you don't have precedence, you know, it's, it's a brand new thing, and you're reacting to um, what's happening. So I look at American capitalism as a synthesis between, um, you know, democratic impulses, uh, you know, society's needs, uh, culture, uh, the needs of entrepreneurs, the, you know, the, the, you know, the needs of investors, all of these things kind of clash. And you have this ongoing drama of, um, you know, of of competing voices in in many ways. So, and sometimes unbridled capitalism works. I mean, it's, it's tremendously creative. If you think of it as like art, it's tremendously creative. I mean, if you have a fashion designer, they should obviously be able to do whatever the hell they want. You know, you want beautiful designs and beautiful clothing and people like it and brings joy, um, you know, by all means. Uh, And then you have obviously the fallout where, you know, is fast fashion environmental or not? So you have these other questions that kind of rise up. And so you always have these conflicts and there's never an ideological solution. So I think oftentimes what you'll see is people get exasperated and, they just say, well, if we can just strip away all this, it can do, we can just strip it away. And so uh, you cannot though, you have a 200 year plus code base in a sense, you have this regulatory framework, you can always think, almost think of it as a code base. Um, and so 
you cannot just unravel it. You know, there were reasons why we put these things into the code base over a long period of time to have all of these parts function properly. Mm, that's really interesting. Cause it, you're right. It does, it does, I think for a lot of people make it just, it's conceptually a lot easier to think about what if we just let the free market take care of everything right. and right. just had a very simple path forward. But right. as you mentioned throughout the book, there's a lot of instances where the government has actually played a helpful role in advancing technologies. And I guess my, my next question here is how do we make sure we have this balance in that, that this operating system is correctly tuned as we progress? Because America's gone through this big transition 400 years ago to today, the country looks a lot different. So how do we make sure that the operating system is adjusting and capitalism is adjusting as the country does? Well, that's the first thing. I think the first thing is to acknowledge that it's an ongoing calibration and not um, an ideological battle necessarily. You know, it's, we've seen it. You know, we've seen bank bailouts. We've seen automaker bailouts. We've seen, you know, during a time of national need, national need like World War II, all industries get nationalized essentially. You know, you're not having automakers even make cars for private consumption. You know, everything, all industries nationalized. I mean, it's about as totalitarian an, an impulse as you can have. But everyone understands that in time of war, that's what tends to happen, especially in a war of that scale and that magnitude. So, I mean, you can take little things. I mean, forget, I mean, I think lots of times you want to distill it down to small examples. I mean, how easy is it for people to use a credit card at a restaurant? You know that your bank account number is, your credit card number is on that credit card. They can take it and, and shop with it. Anybody can, any waiter can share it. And, but you're not scared because you're protected. You don't have any liability beyond $50 or so, and that's just federally guaranteed. Same thing with FDIC insurance. You don't think about, you know, whether your deposit is safe at the bank or not, because you just kind of rely on it. So there are lots of different, um, so to some degree, social protection protections that also become accelerants. So has e-commerce sped up because no one is worried about whether their credit card number is going to get stolen or not? Yeah, people are pretty safe with that. So it accelerates commerce that you know, you really don't care whether you have hard cash on you. Um, you can have a series of numbers that are quite easy for other people to, to glean and get, but, um, but you don't have to be so scared of that. So this happens all the time. And, and I think that's the, the, the first thing is to acknowledge that it is an ongoing calibration, that there is no ideological purity. And I think if people are extremely frustrated, um, if the people are extremely frustrated, that's the wrong way to approach it because you're, you are going to have to deal with uh, these various factors and various elements that are displeased with some of the external of unbridled capitalism. And you're always going to have that. Mm. It's, an, it's an ongoing drama. There is, no, there is no such thing as if only and you're reaching some state of utopia where that's the state you're going to be in. And from then on, you never need to have any new rules or anything else like that. It's just going to operate perfectly. Nothing in life works that way. Your household doesn't work that way. Your relationships don't work that way. Your business doesn't work that way. Your car doesn't work that way. Nothing works that way. Um, so that's a, that's a fool's errand in my view to, to judge whether a system is legitimate based on whether it needs ongoing tweaks. I mean, Apple, I mean, let's take, let's take it, synthesize it down. Apple has an operating system, the iOS. They have other people that are building things on top of that platform. Well, it's not a free-for-all. Apple has to approve your apps. Now, you could make the argument, well, the App Store would be a lot better if they made it a free-for-all. But would it? 
you know? And on top of that, Apple also has to calibrate, this app can use this much computing power when it's running on the OS, whereas security has to run on an ongoing basis. Network has to use this much of the computing resources of your phone. So the operating system is making these calibrations that it's not gonna allow one app to just take over all of the CPU. So you're always, even for something that's fairly small, you're not talking about 350 million people and you know tens of trillions of dollars of economic output, you're talking about one company, even for them, you know, there's, there's this argument to be made. If you don't have a free for all in terms of your app store, uh, maybe it's a better controlled environment. I mean, they're the world's, well, now I guess the second most valuable company. I think Microsoft has been on a tear of late, but you know, the, my, Apple is a much more controlled entity. And so you could almost look at that and say, that's a microcosm for the argument that sometimes a more controlled uh, environment leads to better outcomes. I mean, so for, for instance, if you have building, I told you um, a lavish, gorgeous neighborhood they're going to have the strictest zoning and strictest building codes there are. You know, no one would say, you know, you can go to the, the most hardest core libertarian that lives in a $25 million house. And if I said, well, I just bought the $50 million house next to you and I want to build a, you know, a prison um, or a hundred story <laughs> building. Okay. Um, you know, I don't care how much of a libertarian they are. They're going to have a little bit of a problem with it. So uh, it's not a free-for-all. It's not a free-for-all anywhere. Um, so if you go to beautiful, beautiful places, you go to beautiful cities or beautiful villages, the more beautiful it is, chances are the stricter the building code, mm. the stricter what they allow in. You know, it, when it's a free-for-all, it's going to be ugly pretty quickly. Yeah. So there's this, there's this combination here of mm -hmm. democracy and capitalism. And America seems to have found ingredient this this correct mixture that works yeah definitely why haven't other countries or why is america special in that regard in in why has america separated itself as an economic superpower over the last 400 years um and, and, and is it due to the specific combination of those two well you know sometimes you can look at all of these various causal factors or you can look at it and say somebody has to be on top so i just want to be fascinated by who is on top not everybody can be on top every country cannot be number one you know um and no country is going to be number one forever so the united states right now is number one has been a leader it's, it's a magnificent country obviously um it's got so many good things great things um uh, that are going on and, and that have happened and the great things that it's done and it's accomplished certainly uh but you know so i think sometimes i don't i don't tend to think of the world that way i don't think of, tend to think of oh the united states has accomplished so much why can't other countries do that every country is on its own pace you know you have cultures that thousands of years for instance in india um you have you know a different regulatory base a different you know uh, you know it's maybe it's it's religion maybe it's spirituality maybe it's a confluence of all types of different people to all types of different languages so each society has to synthesize its own history in different ways and, and has had to deal with different types of events that um you know america necessarily hasn't you know it got to start very fresh just a few hundred years ago i mean you, you tend i always tend to think in days not in years so i always tend to think okay 250 years you know how many days is that you know it's less than a hundred thousand days right so you got a hundred years is thirty six thousand five hundred days you know 200 years is, you know, 73,000 days, right? And so 
you know, another 50 years is less than that. So, you know, obviously it's going to be less than a hundred thousand days, a hundred thousand sunsets. You're back to 250 years ago. So uh, that's not a very long time, you know, right. at all. And um, so American history is very recent. On top of that, we did have a civil war, you know, so 72 years, um, you know, after the adoption of the constitution, we did have a, a civil war in this country. So it's, it's almost like America had paid its, you know, uh, price in blood a long time ago, a little earlier than um, some of the other nations had. Um, and so it did have that. And in that, at the end of that civil war, you have in essence, uh, the American experiment touching two full oceans, fully unified, and you have this security buffer in a sense, and you have almost an entire hemisphere that certainly gives a lot of advantages. You can look at it compared to some, um, some nations in Europe, you know, different languages. So Germany, you know, that's 80 million people. Well, they speak German, you know, France next door, 60, 65 million people, they speak French. So even in Europe, where you have a unified market, you have a lot of different languages, right? Somebody going from Italy to Spain, uh, you know, they can pick it up, you know, Spanish and not that different, but English and Italian are quite different. So, um, you know, German and Italian are quite different. So uh, you don't have one contiguous market. Um, so that's a necessarily a deficiency that if you're a German consumer goods manufacturer, you know, you have to relabel your packaging or have to um, figure out a culture right next door. You only have 80 million people in your home market, whereas the United States has this very big, lavish, powerful market of 350 million people. And so the only two countries that have bigger markets are India and China. And, you know, that's a whole different set of, um, you know, history and cultural forces that, that shaped Indian history and Chinese history and the Chinese moment and the Indian moment as of now. So I think it's very hard to just take lessons from, you know, one country at one point of time, one point in time, and try to take those lessons to other people. It's kind of like, um, you know, I used to golf on occasion, and you almost anytime you end up on a golf course, you pick up golf digest and tiger woods on the cover and the 10 tips from tiger woods that day well he's tiger woods <laughs> you right. know? so uh so the united states is kind of like the the tiger woods of the michael jordan of countries and um yeah so, so that's like, interesting that you mentioned the the fresh start america had uh, you know a few hundred years ago and it's you know one of the last kind of areas of the world that had yet to be explored by europeans and so there was this kind of like open pasture or like an opportunity to kind of rethink things. 100%. Now that the world is pretty much settled and that we don't, I mean, unless we're talking about going to space, we don't really have any of that green pasture to like reinvent things and to, to reimagine the way society should be structured. Is that a, a negative for the potential of the world to grow economically? Like that we don't have any more venues to really experiment from scratch i it's possible but on the other hand i mean i do think that you see a, a country like india for instance completely rejuvenating um you know and, and it, it's on a tear you know it's got tons of young people immensely optimistic um so i don't necessarily know that i, I think it's also i think that land businesses that require that level of natural resources are not necessarily the drivers. So if you look at the world's most valuable companies today, they're not industrial companies in a sense. You know, they're information companies or entertainment companies or 
or software companies that have um, different elements baked into it. You know, you look at a Google or a Microsoft or um, certainly Amazon is, is very much in the logistics business and, and they have you know, lots of facilities. Um, but however, I think that the value creation that Amazon has is in, you know, the logistics and the, the its capabilities to, um, you know, use computing power to, to operate those logistics and to, to harness maximum value, um, uh, and, right, out of the logistics. So I think that that is a, um, so I think that's, I think there's always value that's going to be created, tremendous value. I mean, think about the amount of value that's been created in the past 30, 40 years. Um, think about how something that goes from a very expensive good, like an iPhone. I mean, we have this new virtual headset from Apple coming out, you know, it could be a total game changers, right? Spatial computing. So there are always new things that are happening. So I wouldn't put um, the American imagination or human imagination, um, you know, I wouldn't sell it short. I, I think that it's always, um, it's always new, new cool things that are coming out there and some not so cool. I mean, some are just kind of garbage and they took, take over your society and you wish it didn't happen um, or, or, or we've overdone it. So that, that can happen as well. You know, that everything has a, a flip side to it or often does. Uh, and I think one other thing in terms of settling this land, it's not just the fresh start um, where you have land that you can go and conquer, but there were a lot of natural resources too. The United States from 1859, when um, uh, it was first drilled in Titusville, where you could figure out and go to 70, 80 feet into the ground and um, you had oil gusher out of the ground. It was the top oil producer on earth from 1859 all the way to the early 1970s. You know, even today, it, um, it's either been in number one, number two, or number three place in terms of oil production for uh, the last 40 years. And before that, it was number one for over a century. If you look at the gold rush, you know, 10 days after um, the end of the Mexican-American War, um, there's a guy at a sawmill that discovers gold and happens to set off enormous energy. And, and there's a ton of gold being discovered right in the ground. So there are these serendipitous events that are incredibly um, fortunate and lucky events. You could, um, on top of that, cotton. You know, you look at cotton, the number one um, industrial commodity in a sense. It's the first time where you have um, this value add into an industrial process, right? Clothing, you need shelter, clothing, food. Um, food is generally local um, in a time like the 1800s. Um, housing certainly has to be local. You build it locally. But um, clothing, it's, you know, you get cotton sourced from across the ocean. Um, that cotton relies on um, slaves as the labor force, the 4 million African-American slaves in the United States at the time. Um, and you have that input, that raw ingredient powering the textile mills in England. So, you know, it just happened to be that the, the soil in the Mississippi Delta was just incredible for growing cotton. Right. And that also came from the Louisiana Purchase. So that's like so you can have a, a different event decades earlier that triggered why Napoleon would want to sell Louisiana and the Louisiana territories in the first place. And that immediately 20, 30 years later is yielding enormous um, dividends via cotton, which you wouldn't have anticipated. So there are all these different serendipitous things that that are kind of fortunate, lucky breaks. I don't know if you're a sports fan, but in sports, it happens. Right. You have that happen. And, um, you know, it's certainly not all luck, but they're in any sporting event, generally speaking, there are two or three things that happen or, you know, a handful of things that happen that, that dictate the outcome. Mm -hmm. 
That's a great point. Um, one of the things you really changed my mind on in this book was the role of government in in American markets and uh, and the role that government has had historically played. I was under the impression that we were more of like free market capitalists in the early days and have kind of transitioned into like a, a balance. And and your your book illuminated a lot of those early years um, where you you have significant inventions, things like the steamship with uh, monopoly rights being granted in New York. The canals uh, were funded with a government loan. Uh, the railroads had eminent domain. Eminent domain, uh, exactly. Telegraph had government funding. Steel had tariffs. All these things that had some kind of government intervention there to help them along. And and I'm wondering, what do you have a framework for understanding when it is useful to apply government force or, or kind of like help push innovation along? And when it is best to kind of let the market take care of it on its own? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's the question. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's the question when you manage a very, very large economy um, like the American economy, or or you're looking for catalysts in an economy like India, for instance. It's something that I think about often. And I think R and D, I think real deep science and real deep R and D, lots of times are, you know, in, in you know, in a way, best done with government resources, sometimes just because, for instance, the defense sector spends money all the time on things very early satellites, you know, satellites that, um, you know, Raytheon was the, the, the cameras for missile systems that ended up being the technology for television. Um, so you have the internet, right? I mean, so on and on, you know, cable um, television, it, it relied on satellites being able to to send signals back down to um, to cable systems, so everything relied on, to some degree, a little bit of a, a, a catalyst from the government. Some of these big in technologies that we've seen lately, and other times, I think that you you very much want a free for all to take hold. Like for instance, with Tesla, I mean, it's remarkable what he's done. Really, fundamentally remarkable. Um, of course, he's and he received a government loan. He received right. for when he wanted to build a model. Um, the factory for the Model S during the financial crisis, the Department of, I think, either the Department of Defense or the Department of Energy. Yeah, energy. Yeah, put up, you know, a few hundred million dollars, I think $500 million to buy the old Chevy Nova Toyota factory here in Fremont. Um, right. You know, that's not something where the capital markets were closed to him. You know, so the private capital markets, and this is arguably the best entrepreneur in American history. I mean, you could make a case that he's the best. Um, mm -hmm. and another reason why he might be the best is that, you know, other, most of the time you see an entrepreneur that goes into a next big thing and becomes a real giant here, automotive cars really were not a next big thing. You already had, that's a hundred years earlier. You had Henry Ford dominate the, um, American car market. And so a century later for somebody to go back into that business and create, um, to rethink it and reimagine it all together. It's pretty remarkable, but he's an extremely good example. I mean, you have subsidies in terms of the $7,500 tax credit that we have in the United States um, um, to buy an electric car. On top of that, you did have government loans that made it possible. And, and at the same time, you want to be hugely encouraging of entrepreneurial activity because that creativity is um, 
not just a catalyst. I don't always, you shouldn't always think of it as what's good for society. It's also good for the entrepreneur. It's also good for a people to be, be free, to be able to do what they want to, to be able to, to pursue activities that are profitable, that make you a good living. Um, so there's a certain joy that comes from that type of entrepreneurial freedom and creativity. And you do want, um, you do want a risk-taking culture to be there because that's what drives new things. But it's also, there's a, there's a certain joy and energy that comes from it as well. You have a dynamic economy. It energizes your society. Mm -hmm. in, in one of the early chapters, you mentioned uh, a writer with the pen name of Hercules, who in 1807, he was advocating for New York state government to fund the Erie Canal. And he said at the time that it was beyond the reach of any individual capitalist. And I wonder if that is something that is always going to hold true, or is that something that over time, now you look at someone like Elon and he's got $200 billion to his name or whatever it is. Is he now capable of funding some of these really large infrastructure projects on his own? I know Tesla and SpaceX have some history of government funding, but is there a point at which we, we can become so successful uh, as a country that we we get entrepreneurs that now have so many more resources and are able to fund these projects on their own, or will there always be a state component to the earliest stages of these things? Well, I think less so now, actually. So relatively, you know, if you look at John D. Rockefeller's wealth or Andrew Carnegie's wealth relative to the size of the American government then, you know, this is one of the things I point out, and I'll get back to Hercules, but you can look at in 1901, for instance, when U.S. Steel is being formed and the bulk of what constituted U.S. Steel was the Carnegie Steel interests that were contributed into this entity. So J.P. Morgan is putting together this, this company called U.S. Steel. And the biggest be economic beneficiary is, is Carnegie that is selling his assets into this. Um, and at that time, I think U.S. Steel's revenues were like $550, $560 million. And it was just one of those interesting quirks that you look at the federal government's budget that same year, and it's around $560-$600 million or so. So you're looking at one company that has this in terms of expenditures that the federal government did at the time. Um, which is now it's completely an order of magnitude. The government is way bigger than any corporation in the United States, um, any company in terms of um, its purchasing power. And I'll tell you, I mean, you look at, you brought up uh, Musk, or, you know, take Buffett or Gates or any of these guys, you know, 200 billion, $300 billion sounds like a lot, which it is, but in terms of the defense department, for instance, that's three months. I mean, that's three months of, you know, so you have a man that's accumulated a fortune over the course of a lifetime, it'll fund three months of, um, you know, the Pentagon, you know, or you can look at any conflict, like, you know, you used to have these supplemental bills during the Iraq war, there would always be 85 billion, 100 billion. Um, you know, that's, you're talking about a supplemental bill to the Defense Department, and that's half of um, the wealthiest man's net worth. So, um, the scale is is quite different, you know, when the, and you think about these bailouts, you know, anytime you see a bailout, every recession or every big crisis, we tend to have bailouts and those bailouts now are in the trillions of dollars, you know, you're not talking about, um, you know, $200 billion and in $200 billion, that's not liquid, again, you know, that's in the market value of his company. So, um, no, I, I think you do need, you do, you always want, um, 
you always want some role for the government in being able to accelerate things. Sometimes it helps with standards. For instance, I already think we should have had self-driving cars by now. But I think that what's happened is that we put so much emphasis on computer vision and the cars processing power, right? Rather than making the roads network. So if you were to put all those little speed bumps on the road, every single thing that's on the divider that had a chip in it, and it can be basically a road positioning system of some sort, and you had that type of national vision, you would pretty much have self-driving cars because the car is not relying on its own cameras and its own processing power, but it's also able to rely on um, intelligence from the road itself. You know, So you have to have some vision, so it helps. I mean, I, I don't think that we're in a position right now where there's a lot of vision. You have two men that were born in the 1940s that are likely going to be competing in this election. And that is not where you're going to see big, broad vision um, where new things, you're just not going to see it. And that's one of the things that I think that the United States has been sapped of a lot of energy um, in this, this political moment that's, that's stretched on for almost a decade now, uh, maybe even longer. I think, that the, uh, but I think this, this entire century to some degree has, has, um, not allowed America to have a really strong vision of what it can be. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about some of these infrastructure projects that America's taken on, some of the really ambitious ones, the last yeah. ones I can think of, well, so that we had the highways in the fifties, right. networking America, and then, and then going to space mm -hmm. and going to the moon. Right. And then after 69 or so, it feels like the, the number of really ambitious projects has tailed off um what does it take to get back there to, to the point where well, we can I mean, have this networked road system that you talk about and, and build right, up right right well i mean the internet i think has been pretty magnificent you know the internet right. i think is obviously um you know sometimes i think you know you get bored with the internet and you're kind of like you take it for granted but then the other day i was thinking about it, it's unbelievable you know it's unbelievable <laughs> that you have what you have you know it's, it's almost indescribable in terms of its vastness and um, you know, all the different creative experiments you've seen over the past, you know, 30 years, um, you know, mm -hmm. ever since the commercialization of the web browser. So it's, it's kind of remarkable. I, I, it depends. I, you know, I think that there could be an inflection point. There could be something catastrophic that happens. Hopefully not, you know, God forbid. It could be that there's a very, very dynamic person that comes on the horizon. It could be there has to be some something that converges. There has to either be an external catalyst or some type of an internal driver to really find um, find that type of purpose. For instance, with in the 50s, with the roads, you know, it was called the Defense and Interstate Highway Act. So there had to be a defensive purpose. So it's during Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, um, in the early 20s, had taken a tour across America and was shocked at how dilapidated the roads were you know that it took a long time to take a bunch of military vehicles uh, in the 1920s across the country and so for him the value of roads and the value of infrastructure that can quickly mobilize defensive forces inside the united states was something that he was aware of and the 18th in the, in the 1950s um you know maybe it was a little bit of uh, cynicism that he wanted the national interstate highway act and thought that if he had a, him being a former general, you know, the, the Supreme Allied Commander uh, of Allied Forces, um, 
I think that he knew that if he had inserted defense, a defensive purpose that was more likely to get the appropriation that he'd wanted to get. Same thing with same thing with the space program. You know, the space program had it was a circumstance that was driven by the needs of the Cold War, right? You couldn't have you couldn't have another superpower, a rival superpower, having rocket technology that can encircle the globe, and the United States not participate. So there's a external driver that you know sharpens you a little bit. Mm, interesting. One other thing I want to talk about here is the difference between experimenting with some of these new ideas and commercializing them. So when we talk about the internet here, I look at like Tim Berners-Lee mm-hmm. did not get to uh, capture a lot of the value that he created. He created a lot of value, no doubt. But his his capture was very small. Uh, right. And and through the through the book, there's a there's a theme of some of the early uh, engineers and inventors that come up with these brilliant new ideas, and they don't quite capture that the effect of that idea. Someone else goes on to commercialize it, and someone else ends up making a ton of money. And, and you know, we have we have patents maybe that are are a tool to help inventors reap a reward from their uh, from their invention. Is that enough, though? Is that is that the right structure to align incentives and to make sure we have inventors that are willing to take a stab at something totally new and people willing to commercialize it? Well, first, I think that inventors sometimes are motivated by just inventing itself. So I think sometimes you have a commercial motivation, but people that like to tinker like to tinker. You know, they mm-hmm. like what they like. Okay, so I think rent capture is to some degree a concern, you know, how do you capture as much value out of what you've done as possible? But I don't think that many inventors are that commercially driven. I think that um, at the, at the outset, and I think that's also, and I think there is a something to be said for how creative you can be with business models. I mean, that is a part of business. It's not merely the product. It's not merely um, the marketing, but the business model itself. And certainly the product and the marketing are, are, you know, part of the functions of the business model, but business model creativity itself is a fairly important um, discovery. So that's not, can't be separated from whatever the invention is. For instance, Google, the search engine was powerful in 2000, 2001, but it's only in, I think, 2002 or so that, you know, they figured out that keyword advertising was going to be the real thing that, that, you know, breaks that business open and and makes it, um, absolutely thrive. Other times you might have a mechanism of rent capture that is extremely short-lived, but looks immensely powerful at the time that you have it, AOL. So AOL in the year 2000 was worth, you know, almost $200 billion. And it's $19 for a dial-up service. Um, They were dominating, you know, um, I think tens, tens of millions of subscribers, maybe 20 million or so. And all of a sudden you have a very fast deterioration of that business with broadband, obviously. So, so that's, that's one of those things, you know, rent capture is a part of the business model, but you have a couple of instances in American history, Samuel Morse and Eli Whitney both come to mind, right? Morse with the telegraph. Um, he couldn't get anyone in the capitals of Europe, the czar, none of them to help he comes back, he gets a congressional appropriation to test a line. And there you go. It took off from there. Um, he got to participate pretty well, but not 
as well as he could have had he been uh, a better businessman, had he been more commercially driven. Eli Whitney, same thing. Eli Whitney was a great businessman, but he just never made a lot of money from the cotton gin because it was fairly easy to replicate. And one of the things were uh, one of the things that occurred was that the southern states didn't want to necessarily respect this Yankees enforcement of his patent rights. We're like, what are they doing? So um, that was another issue. So you know, are you going to pay? Um, are you going to allow a Connecticut Yankee to all of a sudden, through some invention that seems extremely obvious once you see how it works, to in essence tax the output of Georgia, okay, or Alabama? So. Um, so he eventually ended up making money as a gun maker. Um, but yeah. you know, uh, but he, what he wasn't able to capture rents from the cotton gin at nearly the scale that, um, you would have expected it, him to. And other times you'll see something like you mentioned the, the steam engine, um, earlier, the steam, the commercial steamboat, you know, the rent capture happened with Vanderbilt. I mean, he's the one that, um, was tremendous with that. Not necessarily Robert Fulton, who was the engineer and tinkerer in fact he had died you know he'd been involved in so many different um disputes post commercialization of the um of the steamboat that he died i think i think he was trying to get to a court hearing or something in manhattan and in you know in essence found himself in a freezing rain and caught pneumonia and died i mean something like that something that where you know something that was going on in his life that had to do with legal disputes related to his invention actually in, in a sense caused his death you know that um going back and forth between these hearings so you have these types of um things happen all the time so you know rent capture and invention you know they don't always converge you can look at steve jobs i mean steve jobs with you know in a sense windows um you know what came a little bit after jobs and and saw, you know, the the windows at Xerox Park and had put it into the Macintosh, but they didn't capture, Apple didn't get the rent capture from that um, at all, you know, in, in a sense, you know, they had, you know, less than 10% market share um, for almost ever. But then they have some other next big thing where he is able to get enormous pricing power from um, the smartphone. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Right. Well, it feels like chronologically, like you first have to have the kind of mad scientist or inventor types to mm -hmm. bring in new ideas Definitely. that eventually get to commercialization. Is it right then to think that countries should be optimizing for growing that pool of mad scientist inventors that they have? Definitely. I mean, I always think that, um, I mean, for instance, you know, I was just, uh, connecting with uh, a couple of people here in Silicon Valley the other day, prominent people. And we we're talking about um, what do you do to, um, what do you do to, to, to have the government kind of promote that, right? More tinkering, especially in hardware, hardware or in physical environments, you don't really have a lot of resources that allow people to experiment that much. You know, you could, you know, a lot of, a lot of America, especially urban centers are in dilapidated conditions, you know, strip malls, you can see all kinds of places that, um, it's in various stages of decay. And, you know, if you have a waiter or waitress that wants to borrow $100,000 to go get a degree in environmental studies, you know, you know, next two, three years, take that on. Um, it's pretty much guaranteed. You know, you're going to get, 
you to be able to do that. But if that person wanted $100,000 to buy very creative kitchen equipment to start a bakery, I mean, that's a, a long and arduous process for this person. But a 25-year-old that's highly inventive and wants to bake something and wants to have, um, wants to have a, a dream unfold could not get access to that capital, but yet they could get $100,000 worth of federally guaranteed student loans to pursue some form of higher education that that person might be able to monetize or not monetize. So it's a very interesting dynamic um, as to how do you unlock the energy of young people in the society um, in, in yeah. a way that in a way that it serves everybody. Because you're not going to have, especially with AI and these other things, you're not going to have a hundred percent of uh, American labor and American young people all be programmers. I mean, it's just not going to happen. I mean, you have a um, and especially boys, you know, they like to be in physical environments from a younger age. And so you you don't want to necessarily be behind a screen for eight to 10 hours. It's There's a certain soul-sucking element um, to that type of existence. And I think a lot more people are becoming cognizant of that, um, you know, that, you know, it doesn't help to be sedentary for eight hours, 10 hours. Um, and so what do you do? What do you do to unlock? And it doesn't always have to be a next big thing that's this huge infrastructure project necessarily. It also could be some framework to unlock human creativity in a very, very wealthy country. Right. So I'm going to push this question back to you. What sure. would you do if you were the if you were in charge? You're you're president of the United States right now, and you get to decide how to unlock creativity for this next generation. What are some of the first changes that you might introduce? You know, I mean, I do a one experimental program that um, I've been tinkering around with is exactly that it's that you know why should you uh why should a 20 year old 22 year old be able to take out a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars for a um for higher education but yet couldn't take out a hundred thousand dollar loan to buy a bulldozer right or a hundred thousand dollar to boat a hundred thousand dollar loan um and two or three other kids can also take out a hundred thousand dollars each as well uh, uh so instead of that money ending up at a private university or at a state university, right? It, it's circulating in that in, in the economy, and some people are meant for um, meant to sit in a classroom and learn, and others are meant to learn with their hands and doing things. So I think if experimental programs like that could do a lot. I think that um, that young people ought to be able to get access to capital and not just for the Silicon Valley type of startup, which you know, anybody that's entrepreneurial that really wants to scale tends to think in terms of, you know, e-commerce, apps, um, AI, crypto, but there's a big physical world out there and you want to be able to encourage experiments there as well. Mm -hmm. One one other uh, section in your book talked about how America encouraged experimentation and the development of the steel industry in in the early days it was it was not competitive with uh british steel and it was right. i think about uh twice the price at a, a free market rate and america had stepped in and said here's this 28 dollar per ton tariff and that is going to be on any imports of british steel so that American manufacturers can kind of get up to speed. And that seems to have actually worked. Like it, it, the US, 
I think by 1900, the U.S. was producing 37% of the world's steel. So it really did, you know, uh, encourage activity here. And it really did, you know, grow this into, into one of the largest steel producers in the world. Right. And, um, and Andrew Carnegie says that, too, in his book. So in his you know memoir or autobiography, whatever um, you want to call it, it's that, you know, once he sold Carnegie Steel into U.S. Steel, he does say, you know, how tariffs benefited um, Carnegie Steel quite dramatically, you know, in, in terms of um, not allowing, um, you know, British Steel just completely dominate American markets and how you needed a homegrown industry. In addition, I think that well, and, and there's some cynical, cynical, there's something cynical about that too. I mean, there, there were, you know, the terror of those mechanisms where the government didn't have an income tax at the time. So the income tax was not constitutional. There had to be an amendment passed to make the income tax constitutional. Uh, so before that, the government primarily funded itself through tariffs, through um, taxes on vices, and that was the primary mechanism um, for revenue. So the tariffs were a very important thing. So you had a tariff schedule. So every couple of years, you'd have, you know, businessmen clamor into Washington to look for um, tariffs on, you know, their their foreign competitors and to protect American industry, you know, um, in a sense, because it was more profitable for them. So their pricing power often took the shape of how big a tariff they can get imposed on um, incoming goods from global markets. So the idea that you would have a free market even at that time was not even the case, even during the Gilded Age was very much reliant on um, tariffs to protect American industries. Right. Now, let's pretend that didn't exist, that there was no tariff and that that maybe there was an income tax from day one in America. Um, would the U.S. steel industry be as large today as it is, or would it have just taken longer to get off the ground? Or do you think that it really was a a threat that British steel was a threat to the existence of American steel manufacturing. I, I don't necessarily know it's a, it was a, uh, a threat, um, but I think it would have taken much longer. And I think it would, it would have taken much longer. And the other thing is sometimes once a country starts getting momentum in a certain category of product, they tend to get better and better and better at it. You know, their lead mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily, um, you know, you're not, you're not compressing that Delta between the former leader and the new leader or the leader and an emergent party. Lots of times the leader gets better and better and better at it. Um, that's something you're seeing in China. Now, if you're talking about small scale electronics manufacturing, they're the best on earth. Well, that wasn't right. the case 25 years ago, you know, until the iPhone moment, it's the iPhone moment was not just a moment for, um, Apple, the iPhone moment was also a very big moment for China, because that's the time when they were able to show that they could manufacture something to the exacting standards of a Steve, right in 2007. Um, and at that time, you know, if you were looking at light um, electronic manufacturing, you would look at Korea or Japan, really Japan, you look at Sony and say that's the highest quality in the world. And so for China to be able to go from making things like shoes and toys and smaller gadgets to something that's as precision, um, precisionally manufactured as the iPhone with the types of materials that it uses was quite a remarkable change. And so that momentum, I mean, what other country is gonna catch up with the Chinese right now in terms of um, that type of manufacturing? Very, very difficult. 
So it's, you know, their lead is not going to disappear. It's in fact, momentum um, is a very important thing. Just like in sport, momentum is an important thing with economies. And once you develop a certain expertise, you just have it. Same thing with the Indian IT industry. You know, what other country on earth is going to catch up with all of those types of back office processes um, and, and the Indian IT industry? Uh, it just, it's, that's what India specializes in and that's um, got it enough momentum and you start getting more and more specialization and um, you start getting better and better at it. So I, I don't think leads disappear um, as easily as one would think. Mm. So then is, that, it, is, it, is it right to think then that the government's role here may be just to figure out what resources do we have? What does the world need? And how can we combine those in interesting ways to become the best at something? And then, and then well, kind of let that momentum build on itself? I certainly wouldn't leave anything like that in the hands of government. I mean, I can't even imagine <laughs> bureaucrats coming together uh, and developing anything like that. So, I mean, I think the simpler you make it, um, I think the only thing that I think that the government can do in terms of promoting industry in that sense is figure out something that it really wants at a national scale, something that's not happening with the by the private sector, some block, maybe some blockage. For instance, the roads are not equipped to handle self-driving cars. Um, some broad-based policy that almost eradicates a previous way of doing something. So you almost push everybody into something else, like solar power, for instance. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, what, what have you. It just makes a decision that this is what we want and this is what we're going to do and that's that and writes a big enough check and understand a lot of it is going to be wasted. But, you know, lots of experiments in Silicon Valley are wasted, you know, probably, you know, until you, that's what experiments are. You know, every failed experiment is a waste if you think about it that way. So, mm -hmm. um, right. And so I think that that's the, that's the mentality that you would need, but I wouldn't leave small optimization problems um, continuously getting calibrated by, government forces. I think big couple of big things, broad strokes, if it's protecting American labor, for instance, saying, okay, Americans are just not going to be able to move up the labor chain anymore. You know, it's, it's become a fairly global world. Um, you know, and Americans need to be protected. Um, and these markets need to be protected. And maybe you bring back the tariff. I mean, something like that, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying those types of things I can see, um, you know, I can see the government changing its mind on, for instance, that that is something that, you know, in terms of the economic liberalism that we've had over the past 30 years, you've seen kind of a backlash to it that you have seen, you know, the middle class um, lose a lot of its power and strength and vitality for a long period of time. Um, and, and, you know, we could have been, and I think that the Chinese growth has been very, very interesting because I think I, I do wonder to some degree how many industries we have lost that we're never going to be able to get back because we just ceded that capability and we just didn't do enough to protect that capability. And I think if you leave it purely to markets to protect the capability, you know, if I'm a businessman, I have shareholders, I'm going to go wherever I'm getting cost savings. You know, my job is not to protect my country necessarily, my job is to protect my shareholders and maximize my yield. And it's essentially gonna be self-serving the types of economic decisions that an individual operator makes. And they also have their own pressures. You know, if they don't do it, their competitor is gonna do it. So you have right. a competitive dynamic. So um, I think the government's role on the other hand is saying, yes, you might have 
your individual, your individual rationality might lead to this particular decision, and all of you operating this way um, would lead to that particular decision to outsource this form of labor. But as a society, it's better for us to have this capability internally. And maybe lots of times when you have a security, that's almost very clear that you're not going to give up security functions and outsource that. You're going to want to have some ingrown, um, you know, internal capability. Um, drone manufacturing. You know, if I told you, Kevin, I'm going to give you $10 billion and I want you to outfit a drone army. Here's a credit card with $10 billion. Where are you going to go? Are you going to go to American manufacturers or Chinese manufacturers to get your fill? Right. And I want you to weaponize them fast. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, you go go around America. I mean, it might cost me a million dollars. You know, I'm buying something from um, or more. You know, so you want, uh, but you go to the Chinese. You're buying these uh, DJI, DJI drones that uh, are five hundred dollars, thousand dollars. $600. So I mean, that capability is a, um, is a pretty immense, uh, strength for a country. If it, um, mm -hmm. you know, once you establish it and once it keeps giving you that momentum. So maybe then the, the real role for government is, is just kind of like, uh, a fail safe for this, like it's a use it or lose it kind of mechanism where you either build up an industry or you, uh -huh. you see that industry get offshore and government may be, may be able to step in and say, okay, wait, we need to protect this industry. We want to keep this one here and we don't want to let market forces drive all of it away. Definitely. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just a quick message from our sponsor, Stackwork. Stackwork is a lightning powered platform for generating high quality transcripts of all your audio or video content. They combine AI engines and hundreds of human workers all over the world who are paid over the Lightning Network to assemble these transcripts. And that's what lets Stackwork create better, faster, and less expensive transcripts. If you want to learn more about Stackwork, visit stackwork.com. That is S-T-A-K-Work.com. All right, let's talk about uh, trusts. I want to talk about trusts and monopoly power in I had no idea that in the 18, late 1800s, there were all these trusts forming with companies in a particular industry, consolidating power to the point where they had, they had a majority share in a market. And it was, it was legal up until I think it was like the Sherman Act of 1890, right? That, that introduced this antitrust regulation. Um, is that like, why was why did it take so long to introduce that? And then was that the right decision? Well, it wasn't that long. And even even the word antitrust is almost a misnomer because at that time, what happened was that um, most state corporation laws and limited liability was, you know, not a completely new phenomena, but the ability to form a corporation to limit any type of activity, to limit any type of liability uh, was not necessarily something that anyone can do. So this was something that... Um, you know, for railroads, they allowed um, corporations. But over time, uh, you know, states started allowing anyone for, to form corporations, first of all. And then eventually, New Jersey is the first state that allowed one corporation to own other corporations in other states. Okay. So until then, you couldn't do that. So the way that you would do it is you would have trust set up in multiple states. So if you wanted, if you were a New Jersey corporation, or you had a New Jersey company, 
and you wanted to buy something in Ohio and you wanted to buy something in Virginia, the way you would do it is multiple, um, multiple of those operations owned by a trust with the trust beneficiaries being the corporation in New Jersey. So that's what it meant. So the whole idea of trusts were that anytime you have a company that has multiple state operations, it generally is a tr is is a trust mechanism rather than a uh, a corporate mechanism. Okay, so that's all that's all it meant. So anybody that's using the trust mechanism, you already in, you could already infer they were a larger corporation. So that was the fear that corporations were getting much bigger because um, they were using this fairly new device. Um, but the the corporation laws of uh, of New Jersey and other states follow and change that pretty quickly. So New Jersey um, allowed shareholders and uh, a, a corporation in one in the state of New Jersey to own shares and operations in in other states. And so it's pretty moot. Um, but then even then, I mean, even after the Sherman Act came into effect, you still saw a very large trust movement. So throughout the uh, throughout the 1890s, you know, early, uh, you know, the first few years of, of the 20th century, you saw lots and lots of consolidation happen. And a lot of that consolidation was happening because you had to some degree a deflationary uh, a deflationary force happening. It was a deflationary cycle from almost the 1870s um, through the early 1890s, a long, longer period. Um, and as a result, you saw prices drop. And so when you saw prices drop, it helped for people to consolidate so that you can get pricing power. So it helped to consolidate the market so you don't have competition, in essence, eroding all of your pricing power. So that was the thesis then, that the only way to uh, make some of these industries profitable in a, in a, on a net basis is to some degree consolidated into one or two actors and where pricing power wouldn't get eroded. So that was the... That was the main gist of it. Um, and the second thing was that you had a lot of operators that um, that came of age and of wealth during the war. You know, the Civil War actually was a very good catalyst for a lot of people in the North. Um, and those men were getting older. So in the 1890s, they were getting much older. They were, you know, in their 60s. And, um, you know, there was the, the rise of professional managers at the time as well. So they were other entities into um, into these new trusts in a sense, which are larger corporations that are trading on the, the stock market, um, that are accessing public markets. And at the same time, you also saw an appetite among investors because until that time, you know, the, the vast majority of stocks um, the, in terms of stock market uh, capitalization were largely railroads. So you saw an appetite for people that wanted exposure to other industries and other types of companies so there was that excitement as well. So you had a number of different forces that that led to that. So there wasn't necessarily this uh, this malicious intent in forming these monopolies. I mean, you might see a monopoly in um, in yarn. You know, it would be like the yarn trust. It would be the caramel trust. Um, these really obscure small industries. It would be the pencil trust, um, the tin trust. So you saw small categories, niche categories get consolidated, and that's all it really was. It was just um, a consolidating framework to bring pricing power to these businesses. Um, and it had some other factors that just all kind of converged into this moment. Mm. And then what, how did the, the market then decide, 
okay, these trusts are sometimes too powerful. There's you have Standard Oil and, and things like that where, where they're they're consolidating this market and now they are the pricing, they they set the prices and they have they have a, a over outsized control on a particular market that's important for America. What when did that shift happen in Americans' eyes where they went, this I understand that this should be for you know consolidating players so that they don't outcompete each other and, and lower all the prices. But at some point, this starts to starts to hurt American consumers if, if they now have to pay twice as much for oil. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, in terms of consumers, if you look at the period of growth uh, in the American economy between, let's say, 1870 and 1910, I mean, I don't think that you've seen a bigger transformation in America over a 40-year span other than that span right there. You're talking about enormous amounts of consumer goods um, that are available for the consumer. They can buy it via catalogs, get it delivered to their homes. You're talking about American consumerism um, uh, really take hold during this 40-year period, you know, maybe a generation period. So the idea that you know American consumers were being hurt, I mean, I don't think that that's the, the case. And I mean, your rise of the American consumer during this period, really. I mean, you're talking mm -hmm. about people that have never bought store-bought goods all of a sudden buying things from a catalog. Um, you know, there's just the the variety of goods, the splendor. It's just magnificent. Um, and this is something that, you know, that Teddy Roosevelt addresses in the first month or so after he takes office, after McKinley gets assassinated. Um, McKinley gets assassinated in, I think, September of 1901. And Teddy Roosevelt, you know, is the... He's you know only 40, 41 at the time. And he's talking about that, you know, that Americans don't hold um, companies in, in deep skepticism because they've seen the enormous amount of material wealth that's been created, you know, the splendor that's been created certainly in the United States. And at the same time, they're looking for the government to curtail some of this power. And he's saying it's the legitimate uh, role of the United States government to curtail the power of these corporations, given that corporations are um, creations of the law in the first place, that corporations, the idea of limited liability itself is a creation of a law. It doesn't exist in nature. And so mm -hmm. uh, how would it be that, you know, that, you know, some government policy that gave rise to limited liability that allowed corporations to form in the first place would not um, then also confer some authority on the government to be able to regulate a creation that exists in the law. So, um, that was his logic. And, and to some degree, he was this calibrator um, during the first, between 1901 and 1908. Um, that was the calibrator. He's a, you know, he's a, a Republican president. He was the vice president for a very pro-market president in, in McKinley. And so, um, and so it, was, it was just kind of a nice balancing act. And he was, he was in a sense, the, the balancer at the turn of that century. And at that time, you know, there's a um, there was labor strife. You know, look at the period between the 18, 1870 and, and 1900, you saw tremendous labor strife, including in the, um, through 1905, you had the, saw the big coal strike, uh, railroad strikes. Um, so you're just seeing, you know, you're just seeing a, a, a wildness take hold because you're seeing so much change happen so quickly. You know, the post-war growth in this country, post-Civil War growth, was really dramatic, really tremendous. You have, uh, in a year like 1905, 1906, that's the first time in American history that you had over a million people come into the country. Patient roles, 
that's the those are the first years where a million a million people plus are being absorbed into the American economy. So you're seeing just tremendous change um, happen over such a compressed period. Mm -hmm. Now, if you strip out the growth in that period and you just look at the consolidation of some of these trusts and you compare that to today where we have about you know, seven companies that have like a bigger market capitalization than like stock markets in basically every other country in the world. Um, it, how do those two compare? Because it's not quite apples to apples in the sense that, you know, Facebook doesn't own all of the social media companies on the planet, but they do, these companies do have a very large, play a very large role in all of our lives. Um, when you think about balancing those two, are we, have we tipped the scales towards too much consolidation? Are we not quite as consolidated as we were a hundred years ago? What do you think about that? Well, that's an interesting story, but I don't necessarily know whether industries are were all that consolidated then. I mean, certain industries, I mean, commodity players in a commodity business like oil, commodity business like steel, certainly mm -hmm. there was a lot of consolidation. But I don't know whether that was necessarily the case across the board. You had a lot of consumer products companies that um, had pricing power that accrued to brands. So, for instance, you'd see a Coca-Cola, you'd see a Kellogg cereal, you'd see Hormel in meats, you'd see... Um, all types of consumer brands, right? You had the explosion of automotive brands in the early 1900s from Oldsmobile, Buick, thousands of brands. So I don't necessarily know whether, um, you know, even consolidation was the great strategy. For instance, General Motors was a consolidation. General Motors is a consolidation between Buick, Oldsmobile, Pontiac, um, you know, a few other brands, Cadillac eventually, um, Whereas Ford is the opposite, and Ford was a much more profitable car maker um, all the way through the, the the teens and the twenties than General Motors was. You know, General Motors might have been bigger ultimately, but it didn't make that much money for its shareholders because people got diluted along the way as new things were getting added onto it. Whereas um, Ford was much more vertically integrated, one single brand, um, and he kept buying out his shareholders. So. Uh, in a sense, you're, you're, that, that's probably the best best um, example of two different strategies. One is brand-based, internally focused, um, is building itself off of internally generated profits. The other one, General Motors, pretty much a consolidation. Even the name, you know, so you'd see General Electric, you'd see General Motors, you'd see General Foods, um, Standard Oil. So you would see different names. So Standard, General, American, those types of um those types of generic company names generally meant it was a consolidation, okay? Mm -hmm. And U.S. Steel, right? U.S. Steel, that's nothing, you know, it's not, you know, um, it's highly descriptive. Um, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, the Ford Motor Company is, is named after a guy. So it, um, so that was the distinction that, did. so that's, that's one. I mean, that's, you're talking about, uh, you know, the world's wealthiest man in 1925, 1930, you could argue that Ford was richer than John D. Rockefeller. And that was not a trust. So that was not necessarily the strategy that was going to lead to, um, right. lead to normal profits. And in fact, even if you look at the, the, the height of the trust movement, the trust consolidations, that wasn't even the, the uh, ultimate, uh, ultimate benefit for Standard Oil. Standard Oil really started mushrooming in profits after um, 
the automobile became far more prevalent in American society. Mm. Before that, it was kerosene. Yeah. So do we have, I guess my next question is, do we have the right mechanisms in place to guide the consolidation in, in markets today where we have like seven companies that control everything? Do we have the, the correct mechanisms to control that and keep that in check? Um, because it seems like there's uh, sometimes when you look at like Apple and Google, they they seem to have for the last 10, 15 years just been entirely monopolies in a category and just not had any real uh, pushback. And then I see other, on the other hand, I see things like, uh, I think the UK regulator recently shut down Amazon's attempt to buy Roomba robots, the iRobot vacuum yeah. cleaners. Yeah. And I, well, I, I think to myself, like, those, that doesn't really make sense. I don't know if we're, we have the right frameworks for right. making sure markets are um, operating correctly. Well, I'm not a big fan of, um, governments being that active in terms of antitrust laws. Okay. So that's not one area where I'm very rah-rah. I, I generally think that government could get it wrong. And I think that especially in the tech market, there's I mean Intel, look at a look at an example like in NVIDIA, you know? Um so new things happen all the time. You know, Apple was almost dead and it really had to invent itself um into this position of power. Microsoft, same thing. You know, Microsoft was um, you know, had flatlined, you know, until this new recent renaissance, um, you know, Microsoft was missing its moment. So I'm not a big fan of, um, I mean, I think in certain types of consolidations, like Amazon buying Whole Foods, for instance, you know, maybe, maybe you could make a case for that. But I think overall, um, I don't think that like, I don't think that the, that the United States government necessarily intervening in what one company wants to do in terms of bolting on another company and being so proactive there is necessarily some um, some great bit of economic management. I think sometimes you just kind of let things go and and really focus on what new industries are being created, um, rather than continuously monitor markets for competitive um, competitive effects or anti-competitive effects. Right. Now, through through your book, there it seemed like every time there was a government intervention. Um, it was generally taken in stride. It wasn't really, there wasn't a ton of pushback until the prohibition era. That seemed to stand out to me as like a moment where Americans decided to push back a little bit and take alcohol underground and continue to consume it against the advice, of the, the regulation of their government. Is that true that this is kind of like the, the, do you see that as well as like one of the big moments where Americans said, we're going to push back on this regulation. Have there been any other moments like that since? No, I mean, drugs. I mean, I mean, marijuana has been illegal. Uh, That's true. Was illegal for a long time. Everybody does smokes marijuana, cocaine. Uh, you know, I mean, but that's not, still not even legal. Uh, is, is marijuana legal across all 50 states right now? No, it's not at all. It's not even federally. Okay. Legal. It's not federally legal. So you're talking about, um, in fact, you have a big conflict between um, state laws and federal laws. It's a fairly significant conflict. It just hasn't um, had a solution. You know, so California right. marijuana is legal. Um, federally, it's not legal. You know, so if you take it into Tahoe, for instance, um, you're in violation of federal law because it's a national forest. Um, so you have a lot of courts, um, but of course you have enormous resistance. The fact that you would even have states legalize 
legalizing marijuana where it's illegal federally is is something right anybody that's um that's marijuana in the state of california legally is complying with the laws of california but is you could consider them a felon under federal law so um that's a pushback and you see you see this often i mean you see this in all types of um, areas you see it with uh uh how many people in the united states have housekeepers or house cleaners or services provided by undocumented workers where they don't fill out a tax slip you know, where they don't make a note that this is issued them a 1099 okay which is mm -hmm. what's required right so in a sense you know any tax return filed in the united states in affluent communities where they have housekeepers or anything else um, that's not perfectly documented um, is against the law so you have this type of law breaking not go on i mean it's like it's common practice but you right. have, you have strains of resistance i mean this is not something that um that's new necessarily but gambling it feels, like, hmm? it feels like that was a decisive victory for people almost where, where they said you know what you can't tell us what we can and can't drink and we're gonna we're gonna put an end to that and it seemed like that decisiveness was uh unique in the prohibition that i i don't know if we've seen that same level of decisiveness where people go you know what government you have overreached you've gone beyond what we've kind of set you up to do and right. we're going to push back and we're not going to we're not going to stand for it well they never imagined that it would be ratified in all the states okay and there right. were multiple things that were happening at that time um you know there are these periods where you have um, momentum to pass constitutional amendments i mean it was an amendment to the constitution so did they, you had to have a three quarters of the states um, ratify it, right? And in those states, you had to have, I think, 66%, a lot of each state has different rules, but in most states, I think it's 66% of the state legislature has to like approve of a amendment to the constitution for your state to ratify it. Um, and on top of that, somehow the temperance movement was also combined with the women's right to vote movement. They almost had piggybacked on each other. Um, and on top of that, you already had some um, temporary prohibitions on alcohol sales during World War One. So, for instance, in Canada, um, in England, so right. there, you know, prohibition laws um, were fairly widespread during World War One to save wheat and save these other types of um, save the, the the types of grains necessary to to fund the war, you know, to ration it uh, uh, to power the war rather, not fund it. So you you had kind of that that spillover effect that took hold with prohibition but it's almost in, in a lot of ways it's kind of what happens when you can have a small but very vocal minority that happens to be a swing power in politics and crazy things can just happen that's one of those things prohibition i mean this is a, a nation that loved to drink um loved to drink then um you know loves to drink now um and so it so for america uh to have prohibition to have that happen it's just one of those incredible quirks that how did that policy um you know even take get that much momentum to where you could amend the constitution of the united states so it's pretty mm -hmm. wild yeah and then i think about the great depression where it, it felt to me reading through that section was like it, it felt, felt like people just kind of said okay you know what we'll give the government all all sorts of authority here we'll, we'll let them kind of like tell us what to do and get us out of this mess and then it feels like that that there was never a reset back to the norm. It was it was just like, 
okay, the government has now been granted a set of powers and has yeah. kind of guided the country yeah. in a specific direction. And that's just the way it is. And that's just how we're going to continue operating. Definitely. Well, two things. One, I think that um, that certainly. And then there was a period of time I mean, between 1820, between 1928 and 1932, it just kept getting worse year after year. I mean, that's, that was the whole issue. It just kept getting worse and it was not correcting itself. And the um, economic orthodoxy of the time just was not working because it was rational for any individual in a time of an economic slowdown to pull back, to conserve. But when you collectively do it, when every single person is acting rationally, collectively your economy slows down quite dramatically, right? So it, it has a, a, a destructive effect. And so you need that particular time is when you have this, uh, um, you know, this realization that you need to have the government act as a catalyst, almost as a to do triage, to pump the heart, to restore some quick activity, some burst of activity so that um, you don't have your entire nation of rational actors collectively resulting in a, a, a much more perverse outcome than you otherwise need to have. Right. So it's not just cyclical but it gets cyclical to the point of destruction, you know, destruction of, of productive processes. You always want a little bit of destruction of unproductive processes, you know, wasteful, wasteful activities, businesses be surviving, businesses that are on their last leg, that's a good time to knock these types of entities out. But there are other types of capabilities that you don't want to necessarily lose um, just because you have a collective slowdown necessarily um, that are worth preserving uh, and this is again one of those subjective things, you know. It's worth, what is worth preserving and not worth preserving, and the the ideological um, view would be anything that can't survive is meant to be dead, um, uh -huh. you know. And, and and this is one of those things. So it's easy to say that now, but in 1932, you were not going to go to someone that's necessarily starving or out of work. That if you don't have the right to survive, you should be dead. Um, so it's it's difficult to say that to a society of actual human beings. And, and the other thing that you can see as to how receptive Americans were to this new approach is if you look at Roosevelt's victories, if you look at the size and scale of Roosevelt's victories, I mean, he won enormous amount of states in all four elections. So, you know, his election in 32, his election in 36 and 40, 44, I mean, these were resounding victories. I think in, in 40, he might have lost less than 10 states. Um, he was these were not small victories, you know, every election, he was pretty dominant. Um, and then on top of that, I think the World War Two, I think just cemented the role of government. So maybe, you know, you could have had a pullback, and it would have gone more back, back to a little bit of a normalized framework where government's power would have eroded a little bit. But if you have something like World War Two, even more than the response to the depression um, world war ii in essence had you nationalizing industry after they didn't call it nationalizing because they didn't take over the ownership you know they still allowed people to make profits but in essence the ford motor company is working for the american government it's making you know bombers um you know every car factory is either making chrysler's making tanks you know the head of procurement for the war effort was the former head of sears so you have the all of the commercial energies of this country being deployed for the war. And so that just made the government's um, uh, imprint just far stronger. So anything that could have gone back was not going to go back after 
uh, World War II. And, and certainly after World War II, you have all these young men coming back. So you have the GI Bill. You have, um, you know, you have a whole new form of government intervention in terms of housing markets. You know, there's a huge housing shortage because you're not building homes. You weren't building homes during previously. And uh, on top of that, I don't know what was so obvious about that. Actually, that would have been a pretty interesting catalyst as well. But certainly the housing stock of the country over a 15 year span had gotten, um, you know, had gotten much smaller, just shrank. And so you had a housing crisis when people were coming back after World War II and you had sudden family formation happen because a lot of that was deferred, obviously, with men off to fight wars. And with sudden family formation, you saw sudden need for homes. And so you had this big housing crunch and that housing crunch is solved by government loans. On top of that, you have, um, uh, you know, you have, uh, you know, veterans administration loans as well, in, in addition to FHA loans. Um, so you have, that's the catalyst that anybody can buy a home because the loans are government backed. Right. I wonder, do you think any of these laws should have expiry dates? Because it's, it seems like every time a law is introduced, like it just kind of lives on forever and it just kind of yeah. never disappears. And these systems tend to become corrupted over time. I look at I look at the example of like gold, banning gold ownership. I think that was in the 30s and, and you know, kind of enabling the government to to build up deficits and not and then breaking the link in the 70s to gold with the dollar uh not requiring uh people to uh, not giving people the ability to take their gold back and requiring the dollar um it, it builds up now to this 35 trillion dollar debt and there's there's deficits and there's there's no check on um fiscal responsibility at the government level i think partly because of some of those those breaks in the past and so i wonder like is it why why don't laws all have expiry dates with them? Why don't they all come attached with like we're going to introduce this? We need to do it now because it's an emergency. But in ten years or twenty years, we're going to phase this out because we don't want this to become like a cripple, like a crutch on the system. Right, right. I think people want get used. To, well, you saw this uh, uh, with guns and gun legislation. Okay, so you saw this a couple of times with expiration dates. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting question as to, you know, why would you introduce legislation that's not meant to be permanent if it's logical and rational to do so? Obviously, you have crisis intervention. You have like, you know, economic triage with bailouts and, you know, crisis management. That's certainly not meant to be permanent. So that's automatic dates with it. Uh, like TARP, you know, like what banks can do, what kind of assets banks can purchase during um, economic crisis. You know, they allow banks to have wider latitude in terms of the um, the asset quality of things that they can purchase um, and carry on their balance sheet. Whereas that's not the case, um, you know, in in more normalized circumstances. That's an interesting question. I think it, I think it's on a case by case basis. I think you could try that. Um, you know phase something in and phase something out. I think people do that with taxes. I think the Bush tax yeah. cuts, for instance, um, you know, had, had, you know, phased away and faded out. Um, right. So you had, so you do, you do have that on, on occasion, you know, you have a, a tax rate that was at 35% on ordinary income and I think 15% on capital gains. And 
after the Bush tax cuts lapsed, it went back to 20% in, in 39.6. So right. I mean, you do have that, I mean, on occasion, but I mean, few and far between, I think. The fact that I'm giving you like two or three examples, and those are the only ones <laughs> I could think of. <laughs> That's fair. I want to transition to taxes here because this was another part of the book that just totally blew me away. That mm -hmm. up until uh, the late 1870s, I think there was no uh, corporate tax or personal income tax in America. Um, it was basically all of America's revenue came from the tariffs and from the alcohol and I think tobacco tax. Is that correct? Yeah. And well, the personal income tax didn't go into effect until um, uh, until in the in the teens. So it mm. really went into effect. Um, I think that the, the the amendment was ratified in either 13 or 14, 1913 or 1914. Okay. Um, and so that that you'd have to have a, a constitutional amendment because um, uh, they found that you know you couldn't have uh, the federal government impose a disproportionate obligation on a state because um, it, it was to be proportional because certain states are richer than other states um, and so you couldn't have that happen. So in, this is the first time when the federal government got to directly tax its citizens. You know, um, mm. you know, directly tax it. You know, in a sense, it, it is a, a a fairly significant change in Americans' relationship with the federal government. Um, uh, exactly. So all, all the way into, and that one of the reasons why the introduction of the income tax happened at that time as well is because you had um, it, this is before World War One. It had already been passed before the the amendment had already um, uh, had gone through before participation in World War One. But once America did participate in World War One in 1916 and on, you really saw the use of the income tax to finance the war in a sense. Um, so right. once the United States government figured out that you could actually use the income tax um, to finance that, it became a far bigger feature of how the federal government financed itself. Um, yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, um, it wasn't an effect until the teens, and it wasn't a a fully put into use until sixteen or seventeen. Okay, so we Seven. went from like zero percent tax to like you know now with the upper income tax brackets, you're looking depending on the state, you might be looking close to fifty percent. How did oh, that right. happen, and how did how did America accept that over such a? This is another one of those things that just it seems like it these the rule in 1916 that, uh, or in 1913 and, and kind of like the introduction of it in 1916 to, to really make sure Americans are paying their income tax. It, it just hasn't been challenged. It feels like in, in a hundred years, like how, how did we go from a nation where there's no income tax to now up to half your income's gone and, uh, a sales tax and a property tax too. Well, I think, in, in, well, I think one in one sense, I think that you can look at 1916, um, where Americans didn't have that much that uh, was being provided to them by the federal government. So now it's a different story. You have Social Security, you have right. uh, Medicare, you have um, a huge litany of services, you have FDIC insurance. I mean, just the federal government's role in American economic life is so much more pronounced not that the fdic has nothing to do with the income tax i mean it's not a it's not a function it's a separately financed thing but i think you just tend to look at the 
government's function as far more relevant in the role of American life than you did um, you did in 1915, 1914, 1910. I mean, public schools. You know, where does um, you know, your average American when they're deciding, you know, let's say they get married and have children, you know, the, the, the number one thing that they think about when they're picking a neighborhood is how good are the schools and the schools are a government function. And so right. that is the central driver of where you live and where you choose to, to make your largest purchase, which is a home. And that home itself is federally insured. Um, so you're able to get a lower rate, you know, um, and you're getting your paycheck and you're putting it into an FDIC deposit bank. That didn't exist in 1916. So the idea that you have all these different government functions to some degree allow you to, to accept the role um, of government, um, obviously, if you're benefiting from it. So, or at least right. at least have implicit trade-off. Yeah. Okay. So so progressively over the last hundred years, Americans have been going. The convenience and the service that I'm getting from these individual things, sure, it's worth a few extra percent and it kind of just build up from there. There's nothing else you can, there's nothing more you can do about it. So are you going to erode? Um, so I mean, it, it just, it, it is, it's not what it is. It's just, that's the, that's the nature of the evolution of American society. And you mm -hmm. had, and that's, and that's what we've gone over is that every single time you have a major crisis, you have government intervening, um, to, to pick up some function and that function just ends up becoming permanent. And that's to your earlier point. Why don't you have expiration dates on it? Could be a good idea. Could be interesting. You don't have to think yeah. about it, but it generally becomes, it generally some massive crisis with a government solution. That solution tends to have more permanent overtones. Mm -hmm. Okay. I got a final question for you. So for, for listeners who have not yet read your book, just to give them a little context, you have 35 chapters, all are one word, and there are sometimes an innovation or a commodity or an event, something pivotal in, in America's history. Um, right. If you were to write now a forward-looking book, looking at maybe not the next 400 years, because that's maybe a little hard to predict, but maybe the next 40 years of America, mm -hmm. what would your chapters be titled? What do you think the most pivotal technologies or ideas or concepts are to the next 40 years of America? Well, I think that electric vehicles, that's a fairly significant transformation right now. I think we're seeing it just really go down. I know people would expect to say like crypto or like AI, you know, um, you know, but that that's a younger audience. It's not, I'm not, I'm, a, I'm very aware of crypto and I understand it, you know, I've, um, uh, very well. And I've, I've been in that scene, um, enough to see it but you know that's speculative i think crypto you know possibly you know um ai possibly you know we'll see right i mean it, it just might be behind the scenes but i think that in terms of um you know it, that would be like saying how transformative were search engines you know transformative i mean useful you know um but when i look at the electric car i think that's going to be big i think it's because i think you're looking at um the internal combustion engine completely being phased out I think it's going to have big implications for the electric, obviously. I think solar-powered homes, um, energy, energy. there's a, some type of re revolution in energy. I think that's going to be very significant. Um, I think it, there are other things, too. I think that the American 
economy also could, throw, could go through an optimization stage where we kind of move up the chain in terms of quality. Like the quality of food right now is garbage. I think people mm -hmm. are getting much more cognizant that like the things that we're putting into our bodies are just, you know, there was a time when you want cheaper and cheaper and cheaper goods, you know, more and more. You want cheaper chicken, cheaper beef. You want to be able to have meat at every meal, which is an immense luxury that, you know, very few societies had. Um, no society had until the United States could have it at, at, at such a mass level. Um, but, you know, now it's not about efficiency anymore. It's about moving up the quality food chain. So you could see a little bit of momentum there, which I would hope to see. I, on top of that, I think that the other interesting thing is it's a, on a geopolitical level, what happens when the American role in the world is not quite as pronounced, when you do have the relative strength of a China, India, and others on the Asian landmass, um, where you know they, they are more in control of their destiny, and, and the Asian powers are more in control of the Asian destiny, European powers take a little bit more control of European destiny and what happens to America's role and, and what is the the um, psychic effect and the psychological effect on the American people um, in accepting a, a smaller role, a diminished role. And does that impact American dynamism or it, does the energy shift that you no longer have to, to maintain world order and it creates a renaissance it becomes a catalyst you know that could be another interesting variable to look at too i like those predictions before you go uh where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work you know i don't i've been uh laying low for a little bit i'm i am working on another book novel um and other things but you know i've, I've a TED talk out there i have a couple of uh pbs appearances I've done a couple of podcasts. I should start doing a lot more. I enjoyed it. Maybe I'll just do it with you every single time. You know, um, <laughs> this was a blast. <laughs> you know? um, but it's awesome. But I, but I, I'm going to start doing a lot more podcasts. I think it's a lot more enjoyable. And I think the book. You know, sometimes I, I people tend to ask, you know, what more can you say about the book? That's why you write the book. You write the book because that's that's your vehicle. Your vehicle is the words, not the um, not the spoken words about the book. So I do hope that you know if. Um, that you know they, they give the book a shot for sure well thank you for taking the time to chat today and thank you for writing americana yeah it's a, been a pleasure kevin thank you so much <laughs>